the one and only Peter Betts. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Let me say hello to our guest, Peter Betts. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Good morning, Bob. I'm ready to go. Peter Betts is Mr. History in Fulton and Montgomery Counties, a Fulton Montgomery Community College professor emeritus. For many years, Peter was a county historian in Fulton County. He writes a bi-weekly column on local history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. He's also a great storyteller, a punster, and a reasonably expert marksman at a local rifle club. And you want to start off today, Peter, uh, with uh, a story that you've written, maybe more than one, about the blackouts during World War II. What were they? Well, Bob, I was kind of curious to see if you remember, too, because we're roughly the same age. But uh, uh, the blackouts were held across the nation in World War II once the war got going, and that was when whole cities and counties and, I, I suppose, even New York City, I don't know, went entirely black, dark, in other words, at night, with uh, all lights turned off uh, for specific test periods, not long, but test Mm -hmm. periods, uh, to uh, determine that, uh, A, they could do it, and B, the idea behind it, of course, was to make uh, a city virtually invisible Mm -hmm. uh, for enemy planes, yeah, and uh, that that was the whole well, point. Well, and, and uh, let me just say about my own. I have no. I was born in 1945. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> However, I was told about blackouts, and I know that um, Hugh Donlin, in his uh, book on Amsterdam, has some pithy <laughs> or whatever things to to say about the blackouts and how they were and were not um, maybe religiously observed. <laughs> Well, he would know more than I did, but I, I remember it only... Well, I'll explain it when I when I read you this story. How's that? Go ahead. All right. This time of year, drivers sometimes worry about whiteouts, but at least they don't have to worry about blackouts. Those World War II civil defense exercises during which residents of entire cities and even counties turned off every light in their house, business, or factory and temporarily sat in complete darkness to practice denying enemy bombers any opportunity to see targets. Mm -hmm. Hindsight suggests such drills were a waste of time, considering that no German or Japanese airplane of that era carried enough fuel to reach inland American targets. But after all, the enemy had managed to bomb Pearl Harbor, hadn't it? Mm -hmm. So why not Fulton County, too? It was a far better thing to be prepared, over-prepared, than under-prepared. All over America, the ability of cities to go 100% dark was tested throughout the war, and on Tuesday, February 10, 1942, Fulton County's first test occurred. The following morning's Morning Herald gave a report. Mm-hmm. The effective manner in which Gloversville was blacked out last night was praised by J.J. Farrell, Deputy Director of Civil Defense for Northern New York. The blackout extended over all of Fulton and Hamilton counties in the western part of Montgomery County. The program was effective all over the area, except for a few scattered lights in rural sections. Now, how did authorities know that some lights remained on in those rural homesteads? Yeah. Observers flew over the counties in airplanes, which operated out of the Perth Airport. Oh, 
Policing the effectiveness of these blackouts in Gloversville was mostly the work of 43 volunteer ground observers known as sector or air raid wardens, mm-hmm. walking house by house through their own neighborhoods that were assigned to them, deputized to report anyone discovered with a light on, and these uh, wardens weren't alone. There were also a larger group behind them called the General Mobilization Squad, Mm -hmm. which consisted of 64 men covering 12 different posts, uh, plus 26 uh, police, regulars, and special deputies. Nor were the Boy Scouts, a very helpful organization throughout the war, left out. Sea Scout Troop 110, in uniform, reported to City Hall to serve as messengers. They had bicycles, most of them, uh, mm. and, uh, of course, that made it easier for them to get from place to place rapidly. Right. Another group of Boy Scouts delivered reports from the air raid wardens back to headquarters. While Deputy Director Farrell was pleased with Gloversville's overall performance, it wasn't without a few hitches. Mm-hmm. One airplane reported a light visible on Kingsborough Avenue that turned out on investigation to be a sewer digs road flare. Mm-hmm. Traffic lights in Johnstown were visible, and Gloversville's street lights accidentally came on sooner than they were supposed to. <coughs> there was at least one intentional violation, apparently committed by someone who was not fully into the spirit of the thing. Mm-hmm. An automobile was driven along 2nd Avenue and through Kingsborough Avenue with lights on, despite a warning shouted by various air wardens and special police. The driver nearly ran over two air raid wardens on one corner. The license number was taken down and turned over to police. Mm. Nearby in Johnstown, things were just as black. Johnstown housed the important component of this blackout drill, which was the District Airway Air Raid Warning Center, located in the basement of City Hall. In this old-time cell phone-free world, this was another coordination and a communication center to and from which Johnstown Boy Scouts communicated with that city's beat-pounding air raid wardens. <laughs> Meanwhile, Notices alerting our cities and villages that the raid was on arrived by telephone. Gloversville notified Bleecker, Johnstown called Broad Alban, Broad Alban called Northville, Northville called Lake Pleasant, etc., etc. A certain comical element entered into the process when a plane from Perth Airport flew over the rural districts sounding a siren. But the siren couldn't be heard by anyone because it wasn't as loud as the noise of the motor. (laughs) (laughs) The pilot and his observer, Mm. however, gave the highest praise to Mayfield, stating that Mm. when they flew over this village, it was so dark they couldn't pick it out at all. Amsterdam didn't have its first air raid drill until Monday, April 20th. And when it did, things didn't go so smoothly. The April 21st recorder reported that success was, quote, spoiled by four small businesses which haven't yet completely cooperated with blackout requirements, and also by seven residential houses where the residents had left their homes unoccupied and left lights burning inside. Mm. Publicity or fines may be indicated in the future. 
Obviously, Bob, they should have had all had their lights out, which, of course, would have made it an equal opportunity for burglars. <laughs> yes, it's true. And there were other problems, such as when synchronization of the public warning system failed due to misinterpretation of signals by fire station number three. I think fire station number three was up in the, up in the uh, area just uh, north of Green Hill Cemetery. I, I believe there was a one one uh, engine firehouse up mm -hmm. there, uh, Bob. I think that was the one that didn't get the message. That's somehow. too bad. Yeah. Finally, the city's communication system, i.e. the telephone system, was overloaded by an unnecessary and considerable increase in telephone traffic. It appeared that everyone who was sitting there in the dark wanted to talk to somebody about it. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, Amsterdam's public warning system was certainly sure to alert neighbor neighborhoods of instant uh uh, to uh, instantly delight their houses. Mm -hmm. It was the de uh, this was the thing that I objected to as a baby. I don't I know, see. Nobody listened to me. It was the detonating of a very scary, very loud, universally detested explosive device <clears throat> known as an aerial bomb, which was designed to simulate the sound of a real bomb dropped from an airplane. Mm. And believe me. It was scary. Really? Uh, in, in, well, I'm not that much older than you, but when you're a little kid and all of a sudden you hear a huge explosion, it scares the daylights out of you. Well, you know? I would think. In cities having multiple fire stations or grade schools, such as Amsterdam or any of our cities, uh, the devices were set off just outside. Uh, they were horribly loud, and no one, save the totally deaf, could <laughs> pretend that they didn't hear one. <laughs> They terrified animals and children, myself included, and it didn't help that we lived just up the block from the Market Hill uh, section firehouse on Chestnut Street. Mm. By contrast, all clear signals, such as church or school bells, firehouse sirens, or factory whistles, were most welcomed, bringing within the universal rush for the nearest light switch. <laughs> all well and good. But I'll never understand why those cursed bombs always seem to explode just when Fibber McGee on the radio <laughs> was about to open the door to his closet. <laughs> We're talking with Peter Betts about some of his columns on local history, writing about Fulton and Montgomery counties for the Leader Herald newspaper in uh, Gloversville. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. We have our GoFundMe campaign underway for uh, 2020. If you go online you to GoFundMe.com, I'm sure you'll be able to find our campaign and make a donation if you choose. Or if you'd rather send a check, make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. We're talking with Peter Betts, a historian in uh, Fulton and Montgomery counties. He writes a regular bi-weekly column for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. Now we've got the lights back on, uh, Peter, and you have another topic for you, which is called W.C. Porter, the Absconding Drummer. Right. Now, I think you and I know what a drummer is, but I'm sure a lot of our younger listeners probably don't. Uh, so I'll start by, by explaining that. Uh, an old-time drummer, of course, that was a, kind of a slang word, basically, for a traveling salesman, but 
I think it came from the idea that these salesmen represented specific companies, and their job was to drum up business yeah, yeah. for those particular businesses. Uh, like I say, uh, let's see here. Uh, they appeared regularly in certain defined territories at retail stores. They serviced the store account. They displayed new products, and uh, they phoned their orders uh, for their company's products if it they later on when they had phones mm-hmm. uh, and to uh, have the things delivered to the stores they'd visited. Mm-hmm. In the language of their day, they were a commercial traveler engaged in a respected profession, one in which thousands of such traveling men in the decades before computers served as essential links between local merchants and distant manufacturers. Local hotels and rooming houses depended on regular visits from their drummers for income, but for some unexplained reason, one Gloversville drummer by the name of Walter C. Porter, although quite successful, wore out his welcome and ended up drummed out of his profession. (laughs) Gloversvillians, believing they knew Porter well, were astonished when they opened their December 16, 1902 daily leaders to discover, and I quote, Walter C. Porter, one of of this city, is wanted by police in Philadelphia, Syracuse, Albany, Buffalo. The Philadelphia charge being grand larceny in appropriating about $2,000 worth of sterling silverware consigned to him as agent for the Hartford Sterling Company of that city. Those who know him believe he will be able to explain things. Well, perhaps... But it would have proved difficult to explain why he pawned the Harvard Company's $2,000 worth of sterling silver samples, as well as Albany jeweler H.B. Kemi's additional $400 worth of silverware, because he represented both of those companies, before going on the lam. What else do we know about Walter C. Porter? After absconding with his employer's silverware, he apparently went on a toot. (laughs) <laughs> a resume of Porter's adventures was printed in the February 16, 1903 Syracuse Evening Herald, and it related, Porter started out last fall with a couple of trunks of silverware belonging to the firms he represented. <laughs> he went on a drunk here, immediately cashing a worthless $50 check at the H Hotel. Then he disappeared, turning up in Buffalo where his adventures read like the pages of a romance novel. Mm. He was already pawned, he had already pawned the silverware, had $700 stolen by a bartender in a gambling house here, got mixed up in an attempted grave robbery, and was scared out of town by a clever scheme hatched out by the bartender's friends masquerading as detectives, who came within an ace of frightening Porter into an early grave. <laughs> Uh, Porter is well known here in Syracuse and has been coming for a number of years. He lives in Gloversville, where his romantic marriage via elopement to Catherine Sweet, daughter of a prominent citizen, caused caused sensation in 1900. But there was more. The February 25, 1903 Albany Evening Journal announced that via January's 1903 annual accounting, of these two firms he worked for, 
it was discovered that more money was missing from both of their accounts. Porter's method of defrauding his two employers was by making sales and collecting money for the goods, but keeping the money rather than forwarding it back to the home office of the companies he represented. Yes. And so, when the two firms issued their monthly December bills to the retail merchants, they quickly discovered that the retail merchants had already paid the money to Porter, who was gone. (laughs) Well. Uh, The explanation for Walter Porter's downfall was a common one in those times, but it wasn't for lack of income. According to the newspapers, Porter was employed by Mr. Kemi at a salary of $1,200 a year plus expenses. His salary from the Hartford Sterling Company was double that, and he had other sources of income as well. Wine, women, and song were Porter's downfall. It is said that he had a free, easy way of spending money, especially on the fair sex. (laughs) As for his wife, it was alleged that she had not heard a word from him since December. Hmm. Not even a Christmas card, Bob. Yeah. Did he go to jail? Well, uh, let me... Let me follow up on that. Catherine Porter's prominent parents back in Gloversville must have then grown hoarse telling her, we told you so. Mm-hmm. The abandoned young lady quickly filed for divorce, with respondent Porter being served in absentia, and the divorce was rather quickly granted, after which she returned to being unattached but wiser. <laughs> in spite of his five... $700 loss to the cagey Buffalo bartender, Porter must have still had traveling money, for he managed to stay one jump ahead of the law. Excuse me, my cat's getting in the way here. When uh, someone, supposedly Porter, was apprehended that February, uh, the Gloversville Daily Leader used dark, heavy type for the headline, Arrested in New Haven. Mm. Sparing other details, Detectives met Porter on the street and arrested him. Porter's friends in Gloversville regret that he is in trouble, as they always found him to be a jovial, good-hearted fellow, and are finding it hard to get a reason for his rash actions. But they would still not get an explanation for his reasons, because two days later, the Leader Herald and many other papers printed a retraction stating, the man arrested in New Haven as Walter C. Porter is Walter C. Porter, but he is not the Walter C. Porter of Gloversville. <laughs> really? It was a case of mistaken identity. Or maybe it was a franchise. Yeah. I bet that Walter C. Porter was mad. I bet. <laughs> no further newspaper references to Gloversville's disappearing drummer appear. Like Waldo, police and detectives probably continued wondering for a long time, where's Walter? <laughs> Porter apparently began a new life elsewhere, dancing to the tune of a different drum. Yes. Peter Betts is with us, Mr. History of Fulton and Montgomery Counties. Moving right along here, another uh, tale that Peter's going to tell us. Uh, these come from his uh, Leader Herald history column. Glenn Rudolph, who sent an impersonator to serve a jail term. Right. And that probably wasn't an easy thing to do even back then. No. Uh, Have you ever been 
convicted of making beer illegally and then given a jail sentence that you're just too busy to serve. <laughs> well, no, but maybe I'd like to if, if I were convicted. If so, what better way to solve this annoying problem than to talk somebody else, a bosom buddy, for example, into serving your sentence for you? Which is exactly what Gloversville's Glenn Rudolph, an out-of-the-box thinker who wanted to remain out-of-the-box, uh, did. Unfortunately for Rudolph, the best laid plans of mice, men, and bootleggers often fail. <laughs> it all started the night of October 2nd, 1931, when some mean-spirited federal prohibition agents made a raid along what was then called the Miko Flats, west of Gloversville. Mm -hmm. Accounts indicate their target was not a speakeasy, but an old run-down barn. <clears throat> Uh, which hid a clandestine beer brewery. <coughs> the following day's Morning Herald reported the agents discovered 1,500 gallons of beer, 25 barrels of beer, a large assortment of beer-making equipment, plus the several surprised worker bees interrupted while brewing the suds. Mm. Also arrested was a well-known Gloversville bartender named Glenn Rudolph. After various unsuccessful legal, legal maneuvers, Rudolph was sentenced to two months in the Onondaga County Jail, but apparently he didn't wish to accept the invitation. <laughs> Luckily, he had a really close, loyal pal in local hanger-on John Shepard. For whatever reasons, Shepard thought the world of Rudolph, and in various enterprises, legal and otherwise, the two had long been thicker than molasses. <laughs> or as, as bootleggers. Yes. As soon as his two-month sentence was handed down, Glenn Rudolph approached Shepard with a proposal. How would good old buddy John like to prove his love and affection by serving Glenn's sentence in Glenn's place? <laughs> John Shepard, believe it or not, agreed. The March 4, 1932 Albany <laughs> Times Union explained what happened next. John Shepard of Gloversville was willing to go to the front for his pal, Glenn Rudolph, but found he had undertaken too much when he started serving a two-month jail sentence for Rudolph. When a federal marshal came to pick Rudolph up, he was unable to find Rudolph at his home. But next morning, a man who gave the name of Glenn Rudolph reported to the jail, ready to serve the sentence. Hmm. The marshal shrugged and went home. The Onondaga County Jail, Shepard discovered, was no summer resort. And yeah. after a few days, the alleged Rudolph developed an intense dislike for the place. The food was better in Gloversville. The guards were very impolite. And some of his fellow conflicts mm. were downright ill-mannered. <laughs> yeah. Pining away for home, Shepard soon blurted out the fact that he really wasn't Rudolph, was just serving Rudolph's term as a favor to his friend, and would really like to go home now. <laughs> the real Glenn Rudolph was arrested shortly and charged with contempt. On April 14, 1932, the Herald announced, Glenn Rudolph, who had John Shepard serve a 60-day sentence for him, was sentenced to a year and three months in Atlanta Penitentiary, and John Shepard was given three months in Onondaga. <laughs> Gee. So he should have taken the two months to start with, you know? <laughs> I think he could have, yeah. Right. This time, Rudolph was had no friendly volunteer left uh, 
available to serve as a substitute. And Friend Shepherd couldn't serve because he was already serving in Onondaga's penal hotel <laughs> True. for having impersonated Rudolph. One can almost hear Shepherd telling Rudolph in true Laurel and Hardy fashion, it's another fine mess you've got us into. <laughs> After serving his unavoidable hiatus away from Gloversville, however, Glenn Rudolph very quickly returned to the local scene. His forte definitely was in the management of small taverns or restaurants, and he was no slouch at creative advertising either. With Prohibition over, he must have realized that since any bar or tavern could serve alcohol again, the day of the moonshiner was over. It was To be successful, he had to go legit. A large box advertisement in the October 14, 1933 Morning Herald announced the opening of the Elms Country Club, the bright spot in Fulton County, under personal management of Glenn Rudolph, two miles west of Gloversville on the Miko Road. Ru- Rudolph's Elms offered a floor show nightly. Mm. And uh, I've got an illustration of that here with a beautiful dancing girl in, in the front of it, you know. Uh, says, never a dull moment. <laughs> Held over by popular demand, hey. Betty and Janice. Betty and Janice. I tried to find out something about Betty and Janice, but I'm afraid they've gone down the road. <laughs> yeah, well, that's something—a floor show in Miko. Yes, and nightly, for nightly. heaven's sakes. My goodness. <laughs> On the very same newspaper page was enticing advertisements <clears throat> for other eateries, such as the Next Owner Inn, a rendezvous, a rendezvous for lovers of good food. Mm-hmm. Plus Gordy Randall and his NBC orchestra. Really, I knew Gordy Randall's uh, wife. <laughs> well, uh, maybe she was there too. You know, I don't know. Keep, her she, it was Peg Randall. I don't don't know why I've intruded that into your story, but uh, well, she's fine. also maybe, passed away. I think she was a bit younger Randall. than Gordy. So maybe they lived in Randall. Who knows? <laughs> maybe the Blue Bell Restaurant, which gave free spaghetti dinners on Saturday night. Hawley's with Gene Goldkettle's orchestra, and Healy's Park, of course, which we talked about before, mm-hmm. offering a fine evening of dining and dancing with a group of fine musicians, mostly recently part of Paul Whiteman's orchestra. What more could you want? Boy. You know? Well, I mean, so. there was this era of uh, roadhouses, right? I mean, I guess right. to some extent we have it still, but it was big back then. Yes. Well, some of them were left over from the speakeasy era, you know, and they just went legitimate because now they could advertise. Uh, One might also wonder how many Fulton and Montgomery County swells were available in 1933, the worst year of the Great Depression, with spare cash to support all these entertainment venues. Times being what they were, Glenn's Elms didn't survive. He declared bankruptcy in June 1937, but remained close to the food and liquor trade. In April 1942, he is found operating Glenn's Tavern mm-hmm. on 17 Washington Street, and in 1946 briefly operated the popular Dixie Grill on Perry Street. He died at uh, 61 years ago in 1958. No doubt in 1958, older citizens still recalled Rudolph's almost successful, artful dodging of his original (laughs) jail sentence. But on the occasion of his death, unfortunately for him, Glenn Rudolph wasn't able to find anyone willing 
to take his place. <laughs> that would have been a no no mean trick, no, no mean feat. Not at all. All right. Well, Peter, you've uh, talked your way to the end of this uh, particular edition of the Historian's Podcast. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Well, I very much appreciate the opportunity, Bob, and I'll catch up with you on your uh, your uh, GoFundMe thing as soon as Uncle Sam gives me my tax refund. <laughs> it sounds good to me. Peter Betts, Mr. History in Fulton and Montgomery Counties, has been our guest. He writes a bi-weekly column on local history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. A Fulton Montgomery Community College professor emeritus. For many years, Peter was county historian in Fulton County. This has been the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>